Today we begin another major section of the book of Acts. Up to this point, we've seen the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost, the early persecution in Jerusalem, the expansion of the church beyond the borders of Israel. Those have been the, the major sections. And our focus shifted slightly from Jerusalem up north to Antioch, as we followed Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And last week we saw the church come to a final spirit-led decision not to compel the Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. We ended with Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch in Syria with the decision from the council in hand. Those have been our major sections of the book of Acts. And as we make our way through the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 16, Paul and Barnabas make plans to return to the Galatian churches that they had planted on their first journey. Paul will embark on his second missionary journey today, but it will be without Barnabas. A sharp conflict over the inclusion of John Mark is going to cause these missionaries to separate and go off in opposite directions. And from that point on, the book of Acts will focus on Paul the Apostle and his missionary journeys. We'll also today be introduced to the character of Timothy, who is another key figure in the New Testament. The church has been given the mission to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. This is a difficult, interminable task, and there is going to be conflict along the way. Even Paul and Barnabas could not work together forever. But we must learn to accept the friction as part of the process and to keep moving forward as best we can, because the mission is bigger than any one personality or any one church. There's ongoing recruitment of disciples, and every one of us is going to live to see the day when our generation will be succeeded by another one. For that reason, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how sharp our disagreement, we've got to keep our hands on the plow with an eternal perspective so that we can stay humble and stay ready to handle the next batch of new recruits that come in. We can't make it all about us and our issues. And there are two main sections in our passage today. So let's begin by reading Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. We'll finish up the chapter. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We find Paul and Barnabas still in Antioch. Does not say how long it's been since the Jerusalem Council. Luke only writes that it has been some days. Paul and Barnabas were both elders in this church, as we know from chapter 13, and they probably resumed that leadership role upon their return. But not long before the council in chapter 15, before what we read last week, Paul had written a letter to the churches that they had planted. That, of course, is the epistle to the Galatians. We talked about that last week. From that letter... We can tell that the same pressures had come upon the Gentile Christians in those churches as had come in Antioch and in Jerusalem. And Paul wrote rather strongly in that letter. He, he called them, Oh foolish Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 1. You can imagine how he might have worried about them and might have actually felt bad about how harsh he had been, 
Even in the letter itself, Galatians 4.20, he had written, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. He's like, I I don't really know how bad the situation is, but I feel the need to speak strongly because I'm afraid that if I speak too softly, you're going to think it's not a big deal and you're going to go astray into this error. But he wanted to see them face to face. And you know as well as I do that written communication is never as effective as a good face-to-face conversation. I think a good rule of thumb is never have any conversation of any kind of substance over text messaging. Don't you agree? It never ends well. It never, ever goes well. And Paul knew that too. And with the recent decision from the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, he would have been able to put a stop to whatever nonsense was going on in these churches. A common accusation of Paul, at least at this point, was that he was deviating from what the apostles were leading the church to do. Well, now he's gone to Jerusalem and the apostles have agreed with him. So he's got some leverage, if you want to put it that way, to put a stop to the Judaizing. So he proposes to Barnabas that they ship out again to visit the disciples they'd made on the first trip. This will be the beginning of what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. You've probably got a map of that in the back of your Bible. It's going to begin as a follow-up mission, but it will expand beyond that. Paul is going to receive a vision calling him to Macedonia, and this journey will go on for several years until Paul finally returns to Antioch in chapter 18. And this is a momentous trip. This is where Paul is going to plant the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, all of which received at least one epistle from him in your Bible. This is also where we're going to see the stories of Paul in Berea and Troas and Athens, But it all begins as an attempt to follow up with the churches that he had planted before. This was the pattern of Paul. We've already seen this. On the first journey, he and Barnabas made a clockwise arc from Perga on the coast, up into the highlands in Pisidia, around to Galatia, almost back to Syria. But then they turned around from Derbe and visited all the cities again before they came home. That was Paul's mode of operation. The letters to Thessalonica actually would be written because Paul was rushed out of the city and he was worried that he had not been able to properly establish the church. He later would send Timothy and Titus out to appoint elders in the churches. He was very concerned that the Christians in the Gentile world not be abandoned to the hostile Roman environment. So he frequently would go back to the churches he'd planted. And Barnabas is all on board with this plan. But he and Paul will not be going the same direction this time. In verse 39, it says that there was a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. That word for disagreement in the original Greek is paroxysmos. This is where we get our English word paroxysm. We don't use that word all the time, but let me tell you what I promise is a true story. As I was looking up the official definition of the word paroxysm, I slammed my kneecap into the corner of my desk I proceeded to provide myself with a perfect illustration of what that word means. It means any sudden or violent outburst, a fit of violent action or emotion. So I slid forward in my swivel chair and slammed my knee right up against the corner of the desk and proceeded to go into a paroxysm. It hurt really bad. (laughs) And in Greek, it means all of that, a violent outburst, but more specifically in the Greek here, in the context of a disagreement. We use that word more generally. They meant it in terms of an outburst between two people. This is the word that Luke will use in Acts 17 to describe Paul's reaction to all of the idols in Athens. When it says he was provoked in his spirit, it's the same word here. That's the kind of fight that Paul and Barnabas are having. What is the reason for their disagreement? Well, we see it. Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along with them. 
Mark was Barnabas' cousin. He was the son of Mary, as we've read, who was a wealthy Christian woman in Jerusalem. We met her in chapter 12. You remember when Peter was in prison, they were praying for his release in the house of Mary. That's John Mark's mother. And we know that they were wealthy because they had a house that was big enough to house the church and because they had a servant. You remember Rhoda, who was there to open the door. And the last time Paul and Barnabas had left Antioch, they took Mark with them. But Mark only stayed with them until they left Cyprus. When they reached Perga and Pamphylia, their first stop on the mainland, he returned to Jerusalem. We read that in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. It was only a passing comment. I told you we were going to come back to it, though. Mark strikes me as a sort of spoiled rich boy. We know his family came from money, and his actions look to me like a man who is not accustomed to difficulty. You ever know somebody like that? That'd be a nice guy, but the minute things get tough, they start complaining, and you look at him, and you're like, really, this is what makes you complain? <laughs> this, is, this is tough for you? It's like, you don't know how I grew up. And there's always one person that has had a worse upbringing than everybody else, and it's always a constant fight to see who's the toughest. At least among guys it is. I don't know if ladies do that or not, but... But that's who Mark was. And perhaps that's why Barnabas wanted to take him in the first place. I mean, think about that. Maybe Barnabas knew that his nephew was, or his cousin was uh, sort of a spoiled brat and loved the Lord, but was too afraid to step out and actually try anything. So he says, Paul, let's take him with us. And Paul says, that's a great idea. We'll disciple him along the way. It'll grow him up, they thought. Well, whatever the case, he left them as soon as they left Cyprus. And now they're ready to embark on a second journey, and Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them again. But Paul's not going to have it this time. You really can see the contrast between these two men here. Paul was a tough old buzzard in a lot of ways. He expected a lot from those who did ministry with him. We read about him sending his helpers all over the empire, sometimes on missions that could get them killed. He was not afraid to do that. Paul was a pioneer. Paul was blazing trails and laying foundations. He was often beaten. He was often jailed. He had no time for quitters. They would jeopardize the mission. They would endanger their co-laborers. And Paul was not about to expose himself or his teammates to the danger of being abandoned halfway through a missionary journey. Not again. After all, Jesus himself had said in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, Mark. Barnabas, on the other hand, was a big softy. His real name was Joseph, but he was given the nickname Bar-Nabas, which means son of encouragement by the church in Jerusalem because he was just, the, everybody loved Barnabas. He was the open door. He was willing to give anybody a second or third or fourth chance. He was the one that, that bridged the gap between the churches in Antioch and Jerusalem. He was the one who retrieved Paul from his exile in Tarsus. He was there right alongside Paul, fighting for the inclusion of the Gentiles. And to Barnabas' mind, Mark is older now. He'd matured. He'd grown since his exit in Pamphylia. It had been years. Give him a break, Paul. And on top of that, he was his cousin, so he had all the patience and all the love of a family member. And Jesus had said in Matthew 18, that we should forgive not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. Both of these men had solid biblical cases for their opinion. And both of them were fully convinced in their own minds, and neither one of them was going to budge on this issue. I'm not going with Mark. Well, I'm not going without Mark. Disagreements in the church are inevitable. Even sharp, loud, paroxysm disagreements 
They cannot be avoided on a mission of this scale. Not even Paul and Barnabas were able to see eye to eye on everything. They'd been teammates, they'd been partners for years now, but they would no longer be able to work together after this. The Bible, I love this, is not shy about friction between its heroes. Have you noticed that? We've already seen conflict in the church over the inclusion of the Gentiles, where this group is fighting against this group. We recently studied the pride of Diotrephes in 3 John, and Paul is going to acquire a long list of opponents over the course of his ministry. And church history is the same way. Christians fight and feud and disagree. And I'm not talking today about heresy or sin or that sort of thing. I'm talking about godly, passionate saints who both have a reasonable case for their position, who are unable to get along. Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli were, were the great reformers in the church. And they had a meeting called the Marburg Colloquy. Not a word we really use anymore, colloquy. It just means a meeting. And everybody was pressuring these two, Zwingli in Switzerland and Luther in Germany. They're saying, hey, you guys are both fighting the same fight, but in different places. Why don't you come together and we can get some unity together? And they were able to agree, according to that meeting, on 14 out of 15 points of discussion. They disagreed on the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, you would think that 14 out of 15 is a good enough percentage to work together, right? We agree on 14 out of 15 things. You know what? We'll, we'll overlook the last one. Well, wrong. No. They never did ministry together. They never even saw each other again. There was a similar distance between John Calvin and Martin Luther. In the 1700s, John Wesley and George Whitfield were these amazing evangelists. They were teammates. They did everything together. And then they had a very public squabble over predestination. They were publishing letters about each other, not just about their doctrine, but personal points about each other in the newspapers. And it grew so fierce that they ended up dividing up the resources of their common ministry. You get this building, I get that building. You get this congregation, I get that congregation. And they split up and they parted ways. Now, later in life, both of these men realized that they had been hasty and they were able to reconcile their relationship, but they never did agree on that doctrine. But it does not always have a happy ending like that. And listen, that's to be expected. People have different personalities. People have different backgrounds. They have different points of emphasis, different issues that they're passionate about. And we're talking about the gospel here. These are not small issues. So any opinion that you have about something in the church is of necessity going to be tied to something very important to you. And by that I mean sometimes we are unwilling to bend because we think it is so important it's tied to some of these bigger issues. And this might sound like an odd point for me to make on this topic today, but I think it is important for us to accept that there are going to be disagreements in the church, and sometimes there are even going to be a parting of the ways between different ministries. Sometimes it happens, and you know what, guys? It's not the end of the world. Of course, I, I do not mean to minimize the pain that comes when friends and comrades disagree sharply. It's tragic for us to read this, the falling out between Paul and Barnabas. But as we see in this passage, it's not clear who was right. And both men went on to have amazing, miraculous ministries. We are not going to agree on everything. There are some things upon which we must insist. Somebody wants to say that you can worship Jesus or Muhammad or the Hindu gods. Okay, that's different. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about beyond the essentials. There is room for difference of opinion under the banner of Jesus Christ. Especially, I'll say, difference of opinion on methods and specific decisions concerning ministry and strategy. Y'all, there's no need for us to fight to the death on every issue. You ever known somebody like that? 
doesn't matter how big the issue is, we are going to fight until the earth has been scorched and there's one man standing. My dad used to put it this way to me when I was serving at the church in Lynchburg. He'd say, are you really sure that's a hill that you want to die on? Sometimes it was best just to concede because it's fine or to agree to disagree. What happens is we take all of our favorite memory verses about defending the faith against the devil and against those who are coming from the outside and we apply them to some minor issue, (laughs) some minor thing. Sometimes it's best just to agree to disagree. And sometimes that means it's time for a separation. I'm not talking about an irreparable breach. I'm talking about just, okay, well, maybe we should just do our own thing. Note, by the way, that does not mean competition. This is the wrong way to handle a dispute in the church when you end up competing with one another. In World War II, George Patton and Bernard Montgomery were both generals of tank divisions. And they were both part of the Allied campaign in North Africa and Italy. And the campaigns were successful. They were able to push up into Germany, all the rest of it. But they almost fell apart because these two generals, one from the United States and one from the United Kingdom, were in constant competition with one another. They were drawing up plans. They were disobeying orders on purpose so that they could get a greater share of the glory rather than combining their efforts for the good of the alliance. I don't like that plan because I don't have as much to do in that plan and I won't get as many newspaper headlines about what a great general I am. That was how they were making decisions. It's not good. And competition is poison to the mission of the church as well. You see, Paul and Barnabas separated. They did not engage in feuds with each other. They did not become competitive ministries. They just said, well, you go that way, I'll go this way. And that way we don't have to worry about it. But there's another danger. That's that's the danger of being too aggressive, I would say. But there's another danger, which is being too passive. This is ignoring conflict or running from it in the church. I think we in America have a tendency to be much more like Barnabas than Paul these days. I think we have seen some bad examples of people who were very much like Paul and fought to the death on a lot of things that maybe weren't a big deal. And so we don't want to be like that, and we've swung the other way. We as a church culture are conflict-averse. We'd rather have a nice meeting with sweet spiritual nothings that just make us all feel nice than hash out our differences. I've been in many meetings, even with pastors, where there's an obvious disagreement brewing, but everybody's trying to paper over it in order to avoid having some kind of awkward discussion. That's not good either. This is, this is a problem, I think, in our, our culture at large, where we're unable to have disagreement. Like, it's the worst thing in the world for us to actually fight and disagree with one another. We don't know how to have conflict and then just shake hands and say, okay, well, you got your thing and I've got my thing. Like, no, I must convince them. It's like reading the YouTube comments. Like, nobody ever goes, well, you've made some good points and I'll think about that and maybe uh, maybe we'll meet again sometime. It's like, no, we're just gonna, we're gonna keep getting lower and lower in the dirt until we can finally end this thing. That's not good. It's not good to be passive. In marriage, if there's a problem between the two of you, but you're too afraid to get it out in the open, the only time it's going to get out in the open is when? When you get so angry that you just throw it all aside and out it goes. Well, then you're in trouble. Sometimes it's better, y'all, just to have the disagreement, just to have the fight. But we've convinced ourselves, well, the Lord commanded us to love one another. And if we're supposed to love one another and be kind, how can we ever disagree or debate, goodness gracious? How many times have you, I know I have, been beaten over the head with a message of unity, unity, we need to be unified, even there's no conflict, what are we fighting about? We're fighting over unity, and it seems to be pretty unified to me. When I was in college, I love this story because it's, I was 
talking about paroxysms. I was 18 years old when this happened, so imagine, imagine my life, but like 10 years of maturity removed from it. It was one of my first theology classes, and it was held in a room of several hundred people because it was a required class for everybody. And during one class period, it's just going over general theology issues. We're talking about predestination and election and all that stuff. And there's, there's a flock of Calvinists sitting a few rows ahead of me, just a few rows down. And they were very sure of themselves, as they often are. See, that's, that's called good-natured brotherly ribbing right there. And they're, they're running through all their usual points. And I was really the only one that seemed to be willing to push back. There was nobody else that really had anything to say. So it ended up me going back and forth with this group of five or six guys. And we're not fighting but both sides were sticking to their guns, you know what I mean? Like, the, neither one of us is really budging on what we believe, but we're not yelling or, you know, insulting each other. But everybody starts to murmur and groan around us, and somebody raises their hand, and they go, oh. And so finally, I'll never forget this, one young lady took the mic, it was such a big room, you had to pass the mic back and forth. And she took the mic and she said, this issue doesn't matter, and it's wrong for you guys to be fighting about this because Jesus told us to love one another. And this is why people hate the church, and this is the problem today. And this whole room of hundreds of people stood up and started clapping. And I was rather frustrated because, and to my mind, if you can't debate theology in a theology class, where exactly are you supposed to debate theology? And I think that's kind of the thing. Is we're so afraid that if we're disagreeing, oh no, we must be doing something wrong. But sometimes it's like, no, we're just disagreeing. We have a difference of opinion. And I ended up becoming good friends with some of those guys, actually. Part of that is there's two things. Number one, it was, it was tense for people. Oh, no, they're, they're, they're fighting. I don't like to fight. And another part of it was, this is not Christian. But Paul and Barnabas were both rather Christian, don't you think? And here they are, disagreeing. I don't think the Lord is overly concerned about his children having a difference of opinion on doctrine or of ministry strategy or of style and method. There's some things that are obviously wrong, but again, we're not talking about that. We're talking about differences of opinion. I even think that there is a lot of good to be said for the different denominations that we have. Because I think there are, there are some solid churches that can be next door to each other that disagree on some things. They're not fighting. They're not in competition, hopefully. But they're both doing the thing their way. I've spent my whole life in a non-denominational church. I'm a pastor of a non-denominational church now. But I've always been in unity and solidarity with churches from other denominations as well. Some of us are more like Barnabas. We're open, we're forgiving, we're beloved by everyone. We just want everybody to come and be part of it. And then there's others that are more like Paul. We're strict, we're demanding, we're tough. And listen, we need both sorts to get this job done. The ministry of the church is too big to be just Barnabas or just Paul. If it's just Barnabas, we're going to get steamrolled. If it's just Paul, we're just going to be a giant steamroller, and neither one of those is good. The Lord needed both Paul and Barnabas, but do you see this? He did not necessarily need them to work together on everything. And I think that's okay. Sometimes that's okay. Barnabas took Mark, and he went west to Cyprus. Paul called up Silas and headed east to Syria and Cilicia. And as far as we know, they never did ministry together again. Now, this was not an irreparable breach. I think sometimes this thing has been made up to be more than it actually is. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 6, for example, Paul speaks very highly of Barnabas. It's not as if they hated each other. I mean, don't you think that if Barnabas was really in a crisis and needed Paul's help and, and gave Paul a call, don't you think Paul would have dropped everything to go help him? Well, no, because you wanted to take Mark on your missionary journey. Yeah, it was a disagreement. It was not the end of their friendship. But this is the last we will hear of Barnabas 
and John Mark in the book of Acts. Sometimes, y'all, we will disagree and even have to separate from our brothers in the Lord. But as long as we do it out of respect and do not harbor bitterness in our hearts, we need not feel like we've destroyed the unity of the church. If we didn't have differences of opinion, there would be no need for that word unity. You understand? We all just were right in line with our ministry methods and our doctrinal statements and all the rest of it, then, okay, you're already unified. But the Lord knew that there's going to be some differences of opinion. So don't let that wreck everything. As Paul said in Philippians 1.18, he was talking about those who were trying to compete with his ministry. He said, what then? As in, so what? If there are people that are preaching the gospel because they don't like the way I do it, so they're going to go out and do it their way. He said, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Well, don't you know that there's about 35 other churches in this town? Hey, great. That means there's 36 people proclaiming the gospel every week. That was Paul's attitude. And this was an unpleasant episode. And as I said, I do not mean to minimize how hard this is sometimes. And there are plenty of cases where it's not as clear-cut as it is with Paul and Barnabas. But I think it's good for us to know this, to not be afraid to disagree with one another in the church, and not even to look at separation as the worst possible outcome. The Lord continued to bless them, but he continued to bless them separately, just as he had blessed them when they were together. So that's all I want to say about that. These two apostles choose to go their separate ways. No blame is assigned. Note that very clearly. It's just a thing that happened in the early church. And the fact that we don't hear about Barnabas again is not an indictment of him. Also, we're not going to hear from Peter ever again, and it's not as if he's been indicted. We're just going to be focusing on Paul from here on out. There are two missionary teams now, and both of them have added some new recruits. So let's take a minute to get familiar with these characters. These, of course, being John Mark and Silas. We were introduced to Silas last week. He was one of the prophets chosen by the church in Jerusalem to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch and deliver the decision of the Jerusalem council. It says that he encouraged and strengthened the brothers in Antioch with many words. Now, according to some later manuscripts, we talked about this last time, verse 34 says that Silas stayed in Antioch. Most of the older copies of Acts do not include that verse. It's possible that church tradition has made its way into that text where they had a tradition and they sort of knew what happened because they knew people that had been in that situation and Luke omitted that verse. So they said, oh, well, that's actually what happened. They just put it in there. Well, we, we don't like that they just put it in there. Let's leave the, the scriptures alone. But it does shed a little bit of light about how the church has traditionally understood this. Either way, by verse 40, Silas is back in Antioch with Paul. So it's not a big deal. Silas, it seems, was a seasoned veteran Christian. More like Barnabas than Mark. Mark was more of a protege, more of an up-and-comer, a younger guy probably. And Paul is now looking for somebody to replace Barnabas rather than Mark, because Barnabas was, of course, an older seasoned saint as well. And as one of the two that the people in Jerusalem had sent to Antioch, he must have been very well thought of by everybody in the church. So this is, this is a good guy. Paul's got a good draft pick here for his team. Silas is best known for this missionary journey that we're going to read about through chapter 18. But he pops up in other spots in the New Testament too. Silas was another form of the name Silvanus. So, when you look for the name Silvanus in your New Testament, that is referring to Silas. Luke calls him Silas, everybody else calls him Silvanus, and that is the same person. 
And as you look at that, you see that he had a very significant ministry in helping both to write and to deliver the letters to the churches. He helped write both epistles to the Thessalonians. And according to 1 Peter 5, verse 12, he either helped write 1 Peter or he was the one who delivered it. Church history is mostly silent on Silas. There are some traditions that he became the bishop of Corinth. A lot of these guys, you know, they did their ministry when they were younger, and then as they got older, they would settle down in one place. And church history, church tradition really tells us that he settled in Corinth, which makes sense because we're going to see in a few weeks, he's going to help plant that church with Paul, so they would have known him. He certainly had a connection there. And tradition also tells us that he was martyred. We do not know how, though. I think that all seems like a fitting biography for Silas. Based on the little that we know about him, if we were to find out, you know, Silas pastored the church in Corinth and was martyred there, it's like, well, that sounds like Silas, even if we can't be 100% sure. John Mark, on the other hand, would go to Cyprus with Barnabas. You remember, Barnabas was from Cyprus, so they had a lot of connections there. And Luke does not give us any more information about Mark in this book. But the rest of the Bible actually gives us quite a bit. I've already explained Mark was a young man of means from Jerusalem, and his experience with the church actually extended to before the death of Jesus. In Mark 14, verses 51 through 52, we're given some information that is not provided in any of the other Gospels. This is Mark 14, verses 51 through 52. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says this, A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, because Mark is the only one who records that, that cryptic piece of information, it's probably Mark himself in that story. This was probably him. Apparently, he snuck out and followed Jesus and his disciples into the garden, not even having time to get dressed properly, just threw the linen cloth on. Now, if that is the case, and I think that it is, that means that the Last Supper was probably held in Mary's house, that is, John Mark's house. And furthermore, if that is the same upper room where the apostles met when they returned to Jerusalem, and it seems like it is, then it would have been at Mark's house that the Holy Spirit first came upon the church at Pentecost. And we know that the church and its leaders would have been in and out of that house often, as we saw in Acts chapter 12. Mark had a front row seat to the coolest episodes of the church from the time he was a very young man. And his story is sullied by this episode here, the abandonment of Paul and Barnabas, but he more than made up for it later on in his life. We see him bobbing in and out of the New Testament letters. He's traveling, he's helping wherever he could. Even Paul himself would later do ministry with Mark. He's mentioned in Colossians. He's mentioned in Philemon, where Paul refers to him as his fellow worker. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, at the very end of his life, Paul would write to Timothy, get Mark, and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And as I said before, the breach between Barnabas and Paul was not beyond repair. Later on, Paul is going to do a lot with Mark. But Mark was most prominently associated with the ministry of Peter. Peter calls John Mark my son in 1 Peter 5.13. Actually, the verse after he mentions Silas. So it seems as if at some point, Silas and Mark are both working with Peter, so it's all connected. It's really cool when you, when you take the time to read the end of these letters and the greetings and who's there and who says hello and who's gone there. You can see, oh, wow, these guys are actually doing a lot. It's pretty cool. And the greatest credit to Mark is the gospel that bears his name. Traditionally, the gospel of Mark was written at the dictation of Simon Peter, 
And we also believe that it was the first of the four Gospels to be written. Isn't that cool? Mark wrote the first Gospel to be written. Even if it wasn't, he wrote one of the four Gospels. That's pretty cool. Church history tells us, and this is, uh, this is much more solid than what we know about Silas, that Mark would be the one to found the church in Alexandria in Egypt. The church in Alexandria would be the center of Christian life for hundreds of years, long before Rome became the, the center of the church. Alexandria was sort of holding that place. There was a lot of great men that came out of the church in Alexandria. Athanasius would lead the resistance against Arianism from that church. And Mark laid the foundation for all of that. In fact, his ministry took so many people away from the pagan gods of Egypt that his life ended when a mob came to his house or came to the church, tied a rope around his neck, and dragged him through the city until his death. So, while John Mark did not have the most auspicious of beginnings to his ministry, he finished the race well, didn't he? These are the two new recruits for the missionary work, John Mark and Silas, or Silvanus. And there's actually one more character for us to meet this morning, so let's move on and read the first five verses of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Circle that name, it's the first time we see him. Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul and Silas make their way back to the Galatian churches, starting where the first journey had ended. They first go to Derby. This would have been a, uh, this would have been a northwesterly journey, a very soft northwest for Paul and Silas. And then they make their way to Lystra. You'll remember that Lystra was the place where Paul and Barnabas had first been heralded as the gods come in human form, and then where Paul had been stoned at the behest of the Judaizers from Iconium. And we see a connection in verse 2 that there's relations between the churches in Lystra and Iconium, which makes sense because the cities were less than 20 miles apart. And both of these churches spoke well of a young man named Timothy. Timothy would go on to become Paul's closest companion and his protege. We read more about Timothy from Paul than any other of his companions. He came from here, from this Galatian town called Lystra. And we discussed a few weeks ago, Lystra was a backwater. It was high up in the mountains, and it was famous for being un-Roman and being full of people who were stuck in their own ways. So while Paul and Silas were cosmopolitan, sophisticated, educated people, Timothy was a hillbilly. <laughs> Not only that, he was of mixed heritage. We read in verse 1 that his mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. We do not read anything else about Timothy's father in the Bible. But Paul does mention his mother and his grandmother. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. We also read in 2 Timothy 3.15 that from childhood, Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings. So Timothy was raised in a Jewish household. Back then, as is the case today, uh, 
being a Jew typically comes from your mother. If you're going to be considered an official Jew, if you want to put it that way, your mother had to be a Jew. And that goes back to the tradition surrounding Abraham, because Abraham had, had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, by two different women. And what made the difference was that one of them was born through the woman Sarah, right? So it's the mother that makes the difference according to the tradition. We're not really sure if that's how the Lord views it, but that's how the tradition goes. So that's why Timothy would have been considered a Jew and raised as a Jew. But he had not been circumcised. This could have been the influence of his father. You're not doing that to my son. Are you out of your mind? Or this could have been the neglect of his mother, that she was a Jew, but she didn't really take it that seriously, you understand? Maybe a little bit of both. His mother, as a Jew, certainly should have known better than to marry a Gentile. So maybe while he was learning the scriptures, his upbringing was probably not overly religious. You've met people like this, that they're being raised in a family that is very obviously not sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ, but they learn their Bible because it's a good thing to do to learn that Bible, right? That was Timothy's life. But Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother, had become Christians, and so did Timothy. He was just a young man at this point, possibly as young as his teenage years, but he was well spoken of by everyone in the churches. That's a good boy. He's a, he's a good, godly young man. So Paul decides to take him along. Paul actually did this frequently, that Paul would bring new people along to the team. Luke does not usually narrate the occasion of bringing people onto the team, but he included this story because Timothy would become such a pillar in the church that Luke wanted to make sure everybody knew where he began. Not only that, but Paul circumcised Timothy. This might be confusing to you after all the ruckus that Paul raised in chapter 15. He fought tooth and nail to keep the elders from requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. So why would he do that now? Well, Luke gives us the answer in verse 3. Paul always started his ministry in the synagogues, and he did not want to cause further trouble by taking along an uncircumcised Jew. An uncircumcised Gentile is one thing. They expect that. But to take a young man who's supposedly Jewish, but he's not even circumcised, that would have put a huge stumbling block in the way of these Jews who could become saved. Timothy already had a bit of a stain on his reputation in these cities. Yeah, he's a good boy, but you know his father's Greek, and he really has not been brought up the way he should. So Paul circumcised him to remove that roadblock to evangelism. This is a classic illustration of what we discussed last week, deferring your liberty out of love for somebody else. Paul was not afraid to put his foot down on this issue. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3 says that when Paul went down to meet the apostles, Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul did not circumcise Titus, and he did not let anybody pressure him to be circumcised, because Titus was a Gentile. And Paul's like, this is not what the Lord has required of us. But Timothy was a Jew. And if Timothy was going to do ministry to Jews, he would be totally excluded from the conversation if he was not circumcised. This was a practical step in order to secure an audience for the gospel. There also may have been a sense of heritage here as well. Paul would constantly refer to Timothy as his son in the faith. He was that spiritual father that Timothy's own father never was. And by circumcising him, Paul allowed Timothy to enter fully into the heritage and blessing that was his as a child of Israel. And I mean, growing up in a world where he really wasn't part of either group, it probably was a, a relieving and wonderful thing for Timothy to be brought in and said, this is who you are and this is where you belong. There's a lot to unpack in that, 
that subject, but I'm going to leave it for now and let's move on. Timothy would go on to serve with Paul in countless ways. And if I was going to list all the places in the New Testament that mentions Timothy, it'd be kind of tedious because there's a lot of them. He's mentioned in the epistles of Paul 13 times, not counting the two letters that were written to him directly, 1st and 2nd Timothy. He was sent to deliver letters, to check on the various churches, and even to speak for Paul to resolve difficult situations. He would just send, Timothy, just go handle that, would you? We know from Hebrews 13.23 that he was imprisoned at some point, but he was released. And I mean, if you're traveling around with Paul, that's sort of going to happen. (laughs) Paul's last assignment to Timothy was to pastor the church in Ephesus. And tradition says that he stayed there to the end of his life, that he stayed as the pastor of that church. Long after Paul's death, Timothy tried to stop a procession in honor of Diana, the patron goddess of Ephesus. But the people got so angry that they lynched Timothy right there on the spot. And the stories vary. Some people say he was stoned. Others say he was beheaded. Others that he was dragged by his neck through the streets, just as Mark was. Just a hillbilly kid from Lystra, born to a dysfunctional family. But in Jesus Christ, his destiny was radically changed. There is no other companion of Paul who is spoken of so highly in your New Testament. This is the beginning of a new generation of leadership in the church. Silas, as I said, seems to have been more established at this point, but it's certainly true of these other two. The young bucks that were the 12 apostles have grown up more than two decades now. And even Paul, who is the young firebrand in the church, he's become a respected elder now. It's time for young blood, new recruits, and we find that in Timothy and in Mark. I love how similarly their lives ended, even though they started very differently. And depending on which tradition is correct, it is possible that Mark and Timothy died the same way, for the same reason, in two different cities where they performed the same duties. One was a rich kid from the big city, the other one was a misfit hillbilly. (laughs) The Lord does not care where we begin. He cares about where you go from there. And God takes special delight in taking young men and sending their lives rocketing on a totally different path for his glory. He said to Jeremiah, Do not say, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Jeremiah 1 verse 7. The church should always be seeking out young men and young women to take up the mantle when the time comes. We see the example in Moses with Joshua, and Elijah with Elisha, Jesus with his disciples, Paul with Timothy, and more. This is not because we are obsessed with youth like the world. It's because we know that the mission of the church has to continue until Christ comes back. And if we do not prepare the next generation, the chain will break. We are not to be old fogies in the church looking down our noses at the young up-and-comers. There is to be partnership between all generations in the church. I was a youth pastor for seven years and volunteer for a while before that, so I know what I'm talking about when I say that the last few decades of the church have been abysmal failures when it comes to raising up the next generation. Teenagers and young adults are abandoning the church in numbers that our country, at least, has never seen before. And yet, this is the generation that had targeted ministry and relevance conferences and Christian music and youth groups. Is it because there's anything specifically wrong with those things? That's the conclusion of some people, that youth ministry was a mistake to begin with. Well, I don't think that's quite the case. 
I have seen some really dopey youth ministries. But I've also seen very effective, very spirit-filled youth ministries. What makes the difference? Well, it's the same thing that always makes the difference. If all the programs were used as a means to communicate the gospel, to teach sound doctrine and train the kids for ministry, then they'd be a rousing success. If they were attempts to seem cool and provide an exciting environment for churchy teenagers, then they failed. Because methods matter far less than the substance of what is being communicated. And the fact that this generation, and really the ones that came before this, were the ones that received the most specific attention, are the ones that are falling away the fastest, ought to let us know that it's not about your methods if your methods are not filled with the Spirit. Paul took Timothy on the journey with him, and I think that is a great picture of what we are to do. When I led a youth group, the most effective way to make a disciple out of a teenager was to take him on a missions trip. Not just the trip itself, but all the preparation leading up to the trip was life-changing. We'd read the Bible, usually the whole New Testament before we left, large swaths of the old too. We'd read solid Christian books by men like C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer. We'd discuss all of these things, and we would pray a lot. If you didn't come to the prayer meeting, you were not going on that mission trip if I was leading it. And everyone was required to serve in the church and to do service and evangelism together as a team before we left. We brought the kids in to what it meant to be a serious Christian. And after two or three months of that, these young people were never the same. It's about making disciples the same way you'd make a disciple out of an adult. You just need a lot more patience and a generous sense of humor. <laughs> There are two parallel lessons that we have to grasp here. First, the older generation in the church has a responsibility to cultivate the Timothys and the John Marks. Everybody grows up and starts to scoff at the younger set. Believe me, I'm a millennial. I have heard it all. And I am in an occupation where I don't typically rub shoulders with people my own age very much. Usually, it's people that are much older than I and... Uh, yeah, if there's a joke about millennials to be heard, I promise you I've heard it. But in the church of Jesus Christ, we are not permitted to write off the younger generation. We have a responsibility to take them with us on that narrow road to help them to grow. My generation and the one following us might be shallow. We might be distracted. But a rebuke is far less effective than an arm around the shoulder. Say, let me help you. Walk with me. And second... The second point, the younger generation has a responsibility to step up. We've seen the advent of what is called prolonged adolescence, where young folks put off all the normal markers of growing up longer and longer. Some of this comes from parenting, but young folks, the reasons are not relevant. The youth in the church have a responsibility. They have to take responsibility for their own maturity, even and especially if no one is there to help them. You have the Lord there to guide you, and that's enough. Paul wrote to Timothy, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. He was instructing Timothy to continue the process that Paul had initiated in his life. Timothy, the disciple, was to become Timothy, the disciple maker. There is to be constant generation of new sons and daughters in the church. We want to see the lost come to salvation, of course, but it is just as important, if not more so, to raise up our own children, and sometimes it's not literal children, sometimes just those that are younger than us in the faith, to raise them up to full maturity in Christ. 
our culture treats youth very strangely. On the one hand, we idolize youth, don't we? <laughs> the older generation today has, has taught the rising young people many things, but how to age well is not one of them. The desperation to look and act young by people who should be seasoned citizens, even in the church, has enabled an attitude of arrogance in the youth of today. You know, it's kind of a joke, but we'd have these pastors that would come to my high school as a Christian high school, or they'd come to Liberty where I went to college, and they'd be wanting to relate to us as kids. And so you'd see 60-year-old men walking on stage in skinny jeans. Hey, what's up, kids? Good to see you. And you know what? Not a single one of us thought that was cool. We all went, ew. What is he trying to do? It's like, hey, what's up, guys? You want to see pictures of me on my skateboard? It's like, oh, goodness, what are you doing, right? Because like, if you're 60, be 60. That's what I always tell people. If you're 40, be 40. If you're 20, be 20, because that's who you are. That's what authenticity is. It's not a formula. It's just be yourself, the same thing that we're always told. But you know what that does? That teaches the younger folks that they are to be catered to in the church. That's not a good thing. You're teaching them that they are consumers of the church, that they need to view the church like a product that is being pitched to them. And that's not a good thing. But then on the other hand, so we idolize youth and we pamper them way too much. But on the other hand, we look down on the millennials. We look down on iGen, the next one coming up. Oh, they're vapid and they're undisciplined and they're ridiculous and the church is, is going to fall to pieces the second they get in charge. Well, who do you think raised those kids? Now, don't just nod along with that. Oh, yes, yeah, preach, Tyler, you tell them. No, we as the church have to take responsibility for that. We can't just go, what have you done? It's, we've got to take some of the blame for that and move past just blaming and saying, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? There was one retreat that I led for our high schoolers back in Virginia. And the theme of the retreat, we were discussing the qualities of being a godly man and a godly woman. It was far and away over I guess eight or nine years of youth ministry. It was the most engaged and the most excited I have ever seen a group like that. We had a question and answer session that went far beyond the allotted time where the boys asked me about everything. We split up the guys and girls and we let them ask questions without the other, the other sex in the room. And the boys asked me about how to ask a girl on a date, how to tie a tie, going all the way down. We had one kid ask us how to shave properly. And we went downstairs and we had a little tutorial with all these kids in the bathroom. And the girls were begging my wife to teach them how to sew and how to cook. From that day on, we as a youth group talked about those things all the time. It changed the culture of our group. Never planned that. It just happened. We struck a nerve. I remember we were in Costa Rica, and there's some downtime when you're on a missions trip, and we're talking about manners and etiquette and how to properly shake a person's hand. We had all these guys who were doing handshake practice. They were cracking up, having the time of our lives. They initiated that conversation. I'd have boys call me up and ask me how to use a certain tool. Hey, what's the difference between a Phillips head and a flathead screwdriver? They didn't know. No one ever taught them. And so they'd ask. They would come to me before church started and ask me to check over their ties. Yes, by the way, they started dressing up for church on their own, even though their parents were not. And the parents were astonished by that. And they came to Catlin and myself. We had so many parents come to us and tell us how excited they were. Oh, it's so great. We love seeing this. And you know the statement that I heard over and over again from mothers and fathers about that stuff? When their kids were going home and say, Dad, would you show me how to work on that car? 
Mom, would you show me how to cook? You've never taken the time to show me. This is what I always heard. I had no idea they wanted me to teach them those things. Brothers and sisters, our young people are desperate for someone to teach them. Boys want to be shown how to be men. Girls want to be shown how to be women. And we have a biblical mandate to be those teachers. Titus chapter 2 says the older women are to train the younger women, and the older men are to train the younger men. Do not believe the television and internet hype about a bunch of kids who won't listen to anybody. I had a group of high school boys, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, sitting in rapt attention and taking notes on manners and etiquette at a summer camp. And you know what? They were the ones who asked for it. No one is teaching our kids how to grow up. But we have no right to complain if we have no intention of doing the job ourselves. And does it not go deeper than that? Yes, it is important that we teach our boys how to be men and our girls how to be women. It's vitally important, and it's something I'm very passionate about. But it's more important still that we teach them how to follow Jesus, how to pray, how to study their Bibles, how to serve in the church, how to evangelize. Every one of us should have a Mark or a Timothy in their life to teach these things to. And if you feel unqualified, well, I don't know either. Remember that Paul had no idea what he was doing on this missions trip. There had been no missionary journeys before. Paul was making it up. Uh, I don't know, let's just go to different cities, and I guess let's start a church. Oh, well, let's go to the synagogue. That's where everybody is. Well, we're not allowed to meet there anymore. I guess we should, uh, I guess we should gather somewhere else, huh? Now, I've got to get going, but let's see. Uh, I can't just leave you here. Let, let's set up some elders. Let's put it in charge. Paul was just doing it. <laughs> he had to rely on the Holy Spirit. He had to learn by doing he had to learn by teaching. And you have the same Holy Spirit within you. You must do it. And you can do it. This is an aimless generation and we have the compass, do we not? It cannot wait. We must teach them. And they'll love you for it. I promise they will. Well, let's bring it to a close here. It says, Paul and Silas and Timothy went counterclockwise through all the churches they had planted before. So they go Derby, they go to Lystra, they go to Iconium, they went around to Pisidian Antioch, probably down to Perga and Italia. They didn't go to Cyprus probably because that's where Barnabas was. He, that was sort of his turf, I guess you could say. And they were delivering the guidance from the church in Jerusalem. So remember the list of four things that James had insisted they send out. And I'm sure Paul was discussing the issues of circumcision and legalism in every congregation he visited. And it says the churches were strengthened and increased. Verse 5 is another one of those Lucan summaries. We've seen these throughout the book of Acts. They usually mark the end of a section and the beginning of a new one, where he just kind of summarizes, and the churches grew. And this is what we have here. We are beginning a new section. Now that Paul has parted from Barnabas, he's picked up Silas and Timothy, Luke will move on to the rest of the second missionary journey. We're going to be here through chapter 18, and then there's not going to be much of a break. We're going to immediately start on the third missionary journey. It's going to be all Paul from here on out. So, what is this passage about? We had two major themes today, the conflict between Paul and Barnabas and the recruitment of the new generation. It's all about the onward motion of the church. The mission that we have been given by our commander, Jesus Christ, is more important than any one of us. We must never 
Let our own selfishness keep us from moving forward for the kingdom. We are going to have conflicts, and sometimes we need to go our separate ways. God forbid that we should let a conflict become an excuse to neglect the work of the ministry. And we must never treat ourselves as the chosen ones of God to the exclusion of all others. We are to be constantly training up the next generation so that they can carry on the mission when we're gone. No matter what, the work goes on until Christ comes. Along the journey, we're going to add some new friends. We might lose some old ones, maybe for a while, maybe it'll come back. But in the end, if we keep marching on toward the prize, we're all going to be reunited. All our disagreements are going to be forgotten. All the distinctions are going to be eliminated because we're all going to be together in the glorious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ.